0: There are some things that uh, I have learned the hard way, and I'm sure you've learned this way too. Unfortunately, the things that stick are often learned the hard way. We've all had the common experience of you know, checking to see if you have your keys before you lock the door because you've been locked out before. So now you hide a key, or you keep one close by, or you just don't lock your doors any longer. You've learned never to cut toward yourself. I have two scars on my left thumb less than one inch apart because I didn't learn that lesson very well the first time. I uh, contend that when a group of males of any age get together, that uh, the cumulative IQ of the group drops significantly, significantly, and something dumb is about to happen. Um, it's not the same with women. A group of young women would likely not come up with the idea of burning a couch in the streets after a national championship. I just don't think that's what they would do. But to a group of young men, it seems like the best decision ever. And sometimes the best decision ever turns out to be not so great after all, but we have to learn some things the hard way. I did something really stupid um, with my lawnmower a few weeks ago, and I was telling Marty Maddox about it, and he shared this bit of wisdom for me that he got from his parents. His parents told him that when he turned 60, he should start a stupid fund just to cover the cost of the stupid things that he's about to do in these coming years. And that makes a lot of sense, and currently my account is uh, significantly overdrawn. (laughs) So it's so easy to forget what we learn, especially easy to forget things we've learned listening to others or watching other people or things we only read about. Stuff we don't learn firsthand is especially hard to remember. Remember? When it's my turn to preach for the next several, several sermons, I plan to focus on a few people's stories in the Old Testament. Next week, we'll take a look at Jonah. The following week, we'll look at uh, Jacob and Leah. And my goal in all of these sermons is to help us see how God treats us when we find ourselves in, a, in different kinds of situations. For Jonah, you know, how does God treat us when we run from an open door? For Jacob and Leah, how does God treat us when we've missed out on receiving a blessing that we should have gotten from our family? I don't believe how God treats us needs to be a mystery. Uh, Some of these men and women in the Old Testament are a lot like us. And watching how God treats people then, we will then know how he treats us today. Uh, The letters OT is not an acronym for out of touch. The Bible is highly relevant with insights wanting and waiting to be discovered. So today we're going to kick off with a text in the New Testament... But this one really is about Old Testament events. There's a chapter in 1 Corinthians that Greg just read to us with the heading, Warnings from Israel's History. It's chapter 10. And this chapter is dedicated to learning from the past. And Paul begins with these words. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And I appreciate that because I don't want to be ignorant either. I mean, that's a great way to begin because that's not who we want to be. That's not how we want to be. Who would want to be ignorant? Ignorant people are those who don't learn. They choose not to learn. They keep doing the same wrong things the same wrong way. And doing the same things the same way, expecting a different result, in the words of Dave Ramsey, it's insanity, right? So Paul says to his readers, I have some things to tell you about your family which you can learn from. So you won't keep making the same mistakes they did. So you won't keep practicing insanity. So here's verse 1. For I don't want you to be ignorant about the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Paul is going all the way back to Exodus, that amazing adventure Israel experienced as they were freed from Egyptian oppression. And you remember that cloud that led them through the Red Sea when the cloud moved, you know, they moved. When the cloud parked, they parked. And you remember how the Israelites walked through the Red Sea and how Pharaoh's army followed them. And you remember what happened next. You know, God let the water roll and he wiped them out and there were horses and chariots and weapons and soldiers littered the shoreline. I mean, it had to be a gruesome sight to see. Paul is resurrecting this history for a purpose. He wants the Corinthians to remember something. But what does he have in mind? In the preceding few chapters in in the letter to the Corinthians, we see a problem emerge with some of the Christians in Corinth. On the surface, chapter 8 is about the food about what food to eat, and the heading is food sacrifice to idols. Some people were making a big deal about eating meat that had been used in idol worship. Paul didn't get very fired up about that particular issue, but he does give a subsurface response that transcends that issue. In chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. So there's a principle in that statement that's bigger than the meat issue. Then in chapter 9, the surface issue is about Paul being paid to be an apostle. The heading is the rights of an apostle. And he seems to get a little more fired up about this, but it's still not a huge deal to him. However, he again throws out this subsurface response that's much deeper than the question. In chapter 9 and verse 18, he says, what then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. So here's what's going on in these two summary statements. This is what Paul wants the Corinthians to see for the mistakes of their family history. The bottom line message is, it's not about you. You see, these Christians in Corinth were hung up on their rights. Their right to take someone to court in chapter 6. Their right to satisfy their lust in chapter 7. To eat whatever they wanted in chapter 8. Discussions about rights can easily turn into an unhealthy selfishness because rights are all about us. Not about others. Certainly not about God. So in chapter 9, Paul says he has a right to receive money for his work. However, he's willing to give up his rights for the sake of his relationship and his influence with others. The Israelites had the same problem. They thought it was all about them. They thought they were at the center of the universe. But that's not what being God's chosen meant. Being chosen by God meant that he would show all the other nations who he was through his relationship with them. They were never the boss. That's why we read this line in, back in first, first Corinthians 10, verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Have you, had a, have you ever had a momentary uh, epiphany like that? It's like a, an instantaneous humbling an unpleasant realization that you are not the boss. For instance... You'd think that a 30-year-old mature adult would be able to manage a small, two-year-old weak child. You soon learn. You soon learn that you soon you soon learn how to speak, <laughs> and then you teach your child how to do that. You soon learn you might not be the boss. You know. You'd think the policeman would understand that the line of Starbucks was uh, was backed up, um, and now you're about to be late for your vaccine appointment but you realize getting to your meeting on time isn't his priority. You're, you're not the boss. You'd think your mortgage company would have a little compassion when you weren't able to make your payment on time because your HVAC went out. You, soon le- you <laughs> Again, you <laughs> soon learn compassion for you isn't necessarily a part of their core values. You know, you're, you're not the boss. We're not the boss like we think we are. And neither were the Israelites nor the Christians at Corinth. Every paragraph in this section of 1 Corinthians begins with the same point. Remember the past and learn from it. Verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that our forefathers were all under, the, all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. I want you to remember that. Verse 6, the next paragraph. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Learn from that. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Learn from that. I don't want to confuse anybody with this this message. Barrett made this uh, same reference last Sunday. So we're kind of going down the same page here for a moment. In a letter to the Philippians, Paul encourages his readers to forget what is what? Behind, right? Now he's telling these readers in Corinth to remember the past. What should we do? Forget what is behind or remember the past? In the Old Testament, we see people frequently building altars, for the sake of remembering. When their kids would see one of these altars, it gave the parents a perfect opportunity to tell them about their history with God and about God's faithfulness to them. We all have victories in our past God made, that God clearly made happen. We've also had times when God was at our side helping us get over, uh, get past, get beyond our lowest points. And these experiences are important to hang on to, to remind us, of God's faithfulness when the next low point hits. Matt Chandler writes these words that I thought uh, were helpful. The victory of yesterday was given to you by the grace of yesterday. Today comes with a grace of its own. His mercies are new every morning. Yesterday's grace is inadequate in the face of today's struggles. We need to be careful not to allow our pursuit of Jesus to be impacted by some sin or struggle from our past. Paul says forgets what is behind. Forget those things which hinder your confidence in Christ and your obedience to Him. Uh, That's the message to the Philippians. The message to the Corinthians is aimed at encouraging them to remember what God has done in their lives and in the lives of others. Remember His faithfulness. Remember His leading. So Paul recalls in this chapter, he recalls four tragic desert decisions in Israel's history as a motivation for these Corinthians to not even begin to think it's about them. The first tragedy Paul replays takes place one day while Moses is on the mountain with God. Verse 7 of first, first Corinthians 10. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. You see with, and you remember this, with Moses up on the mountain, he was hanging out there with God getting the, the commandments. For what seems like an eternity, the people in the valley are really bored and seem to be getting very antsy. And they say to Aaron... We want a God to worship. Moses is AWOL, and we don't know if he's ever coming back to us. And to be honest, would you blame him if he didn't? Uh, knowing what you know about the Israelites, it would be tough to come down from the mountain. They are a very difficult crowd to please. So these people all throw their jewelry in, uh, into a fire, and they melted it down. And you remember, the language is kind of funny. It says, out popped this calf, <laughs> Like, miraculously, this calf popped out of the fire. And then they said this, which is an astounding statement to make after what they've been through. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. The next day, people got up early and partied like it was Mardi Gras at the French Quarter, and this golden calf was the centerpiece of the party. And when Moses did finally show up, uh, he and God were a bit perturbed. Here's the way it reads in Exodus 32. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then God told those Levites to get their swords and clean house and 3,000 people died. Tragic event number two happened again while Israel was meandering through the desert. Verse 8 said, We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Now what's going on here is that the Israelite men were scamming on the women from Moab. And they began to party with them and do immoral things with them, eventually even worshiping their gods. And God became furious again and wanted everyone who had joined in this nonsense to be punished. So a plague begins to ravage the camp. Then one particularly bold Israelite paraded his Midianite date through the right, uh, right through the crowd all the way to the front, showing off his catch. And as he proudly strolled to frolic in his tent, Phineas, Aaron's grandson, saw this and peeled off from the crowd and found them in the tent and ran his sword through both of them. And their death stopped the plague, but not before 24,000 had already died. The next black eye in Israel's history, Paul coughs up, has to do with their generally grumbly attitude. Verse 9, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. In Numbers 20 is where you read about this incident. The Israelites expressed their ingratitude about being freed from Egypt's bondage by spitting out this worn-out refrain, which you hear all through Exodus and all through that part of our Old Testament. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this God-forsaken desert? We'd rather be back in Egypt making bricks. How tired does Moses get hearing the same complaint over and over? Which, by the way, started just three days into this trip. They sang that negative tune in a minor chord for 40 years. And they don't get their question answered by God, but God does send a horde of aggressive, poisonous snakes into the camp, I guess, to let them know things could be a whole lot worse. And by the time that was over, the Bible says many Israelites died. It sounds to me like a few thousand more. And finally, Paul replays the story of a tragic power struggle that occurred within the camp. Verse 10, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Some of the Levites were annoyed that Aaron and Moses were the big dogs and they were only pups in the ministry hierarchy. Uh, the Levites basically asked more, uh, Moses, uh, Who died and made you king? So Moses planned a showdown um, pitting himself and Aaron versus the rebel leaders, Korah, and um, Dathan And Abiram. and God shows up at the showdown and tells everyone to back away from the leaders, those three leaders' tents. And Moses said a few words, and then this is what happens in Numbers 16, it's recorded. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them, under them split apart, and the earth opened his mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And it didn't end with those 253 deaths. The next day, the Israelites were hacked off because Moses and Aaron uh, killed the Lord's people, in their view. And God hit them with a plague that left 14,700 more dead. So in these four events from Israelites' history, Paul resurrects in 1 Corinthians 10, over 42,000 Israelites died. That's a little less than the population of Clark County. 1 Corinthians ten eleven, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So my question is, what could we possibly learn from these gruesome events that are even hard to imagine and read about? Um, so let's look on down into 1 Corinthians 10 and see if we can find the answer. Verse 14, you find the word, therefore, which is a helpful word. It says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Yeah, therefore is a like a flag, a summary word. Uh, it takes all the things that were... Spoken about preceding the word, and, and it's like, here's what this is all about. Therefore, here's the, here's the summary. And Paul says, the summary is, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, people, ideas, stuff, dreams. Idolatry is allowing lesser gods to push the greatest God off the throne. It looks to me like the Corinthians had an idol, um, They were worshiping their own rights. And that one thing was causing a lot of problems in their church. They wanted to pursue their right to eat the discount priced meat that was left over from pagan worship without even thinking about the problem they were causing with the new Christians that were coming from that side of things. They wanted to exercise the right of due process when they'd been cheated, even without thinking about the tainted image of the church they were painting for the community. They wanted to satisfy their sexual appetites without ever thinking about their body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, idolatry is a church word uh, which may easily be easily be dismissed as something that happened you know, thousands of years ago, like out popped this calf, and so well, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, and that happened a long time ago. I mean, who who worships an idol today? Where would you even find an idol in Lexington? Outside of Reparina. (laughs) But we won't bring that up. Because Tony Neely says. I might be accused of going from preaching to meddling. It it might have been easier to identify Dagon. Or Molech. Or Asherah. Than for us to find an idol. You know God commanded his people to tear down idols. By uh, ramming them over. And knocking them down. And breaking them into pieces. And pulling them from the ground. But we will benefit by understanding. That our idols look a little different. Idolatry is simply trying to build our identity on something, anything, instead of God. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We habitually look to something or someone smaller than God for the thing we crave and that we need. An idol is anything or anyone you must have in order for your life to be meaningful, valuable, secure, uh, free. Here's one way to scan for idols in your life. Um, Think about whatever it is in your life that if you lost it, you would want to quit living. Most of our idols are good things. Most of our idols are good gifts from God. Uh, The trouble comes when we transform these good things into ultimate things. And then we depend on these things or people to provide us with meaning and purpose, with security and significance, which only God can offer in our fallen world, our, needy is, our neediness, which is intended to lead us toward God, uh, we, we just choose to go a different route. We look to fill our knees with other sources of ultimate devotion, and that's idolatry. Tim Keller says idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. Anytime we sin, we allow a competing desire to have a high, higher priority than God and His will for our lives. All sin involves idolatry. Putting something on a pedestal higher than... Than God. Here are a few statements I found in a book called Soul Keeping, which might help us ferret out the presence of an idol in our life. Uh, there's like six or so of these that might help you to think about this. Here's the first one: I think about money a lot, as in getting more of it. Sometimes I fantasize about winning the lottery or coming into a big inheritance. I have a mental wish list of the things I'd like to buy if money were no object. Here's another one. I wish I had more power and control over others. It seems as if my spouse and kids don't respect me enough. Ditto at work. I know I would handle it carefully. I would just like to be a more powerful person. I have missed important family events in order to pursue my career. I justify by telling myself and my family that this is what it takes to provide for them. I tell myself that if I keep working hard, I will reach a level where I will be able to relax and spend a little more time with the people I love. I consider myself an honest person, someone with good values, but I would set those aside to pursue something important to me if I knew no one else would know about it. More than once, I've had arguments over something I wanted to do, but my spouse did not want to. Or over something I wanted to buy that my spouse didn't think I should buy. If my doctor told me I would have to give up, and you fill in the blank, alcohol, cigarettes, red meat, caffeine, salt, sugar, you know, whatever they're telling you. But I have to give it up because it was seriously putting my health at risk. I would find it difficult to the point of being impossible. I likely would not tell anyone in order to avoid accountability. Accountability. If your soul is devoted to something more important to you than God, that's, that's, a, that's your idol. That's my idol. The Israelites thought it was all about them. They pretty much did what they wanted and said what they felt without ever thinking much about God and how he's the center of all creation and how they weren't. And so many of them died because of that sin. And now the Corinthians are are only thinking about themselves, doing what they want, saying what they feel, without ever much thinking about God and how he's the center of creation and not them. So Paul gives them a warning based on family history. Flee idolatry. Don't allow puny gods to push the greatest God off the throne. Paul says, this isn't about you. Verse 15 um, of chapter 10. Let's read a few verses there. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. We we have a heritage that we can learn from. In fact, we're part of this heritage all the way back to the desert as well. And the Lord's Supper is a family table. And some in the family have very sad stories, just like our earthly families. And God's given us so much history to listen to. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's tragic, some of it's amazing. And the purpose is for us to learn and for us to build a relationship with him through history. The Lord's Supper is a time every week to make a connection with God's story down through generations. It's an opportunity to set our minds and hearts on avoiding the same pitfalls we just read about. It's an opportunity to look around and see that you're not alone in this journey. It's an opportunity to to renew your resolve to follow Jesus faithfully for, for another week. And an opportunity to acknowledge that God has been faithful to you all along. We need moments in our day And in our week, to remember, it's not about us. So if you want to pull your bread out of your little container, um, we'll take this together. Let's pray over the bread. Father, thank you for the history lesson. We see all you did for your people as you led them out of Egypt. We see the good and the bad, the defeats and the victories. And we know that we're all in this together. As we commit once again to keep on believing this coming week, help us to know that we aren't in this alone, that we're part of a family. The people beside us right now are on this journey with us, and we can learn from each other and from all those who've made this journey before us. We are participating in the body of Christ in honor of our family's history and for the sake of our family's future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and take the top off your juice. Father, we participate together this morning in the sacrifice of Christ together. Each one of us needs to be rescued. We need a Savior, every one of us. And we come to this moment with a pile of mistakes and bad decisions and selfishness and sins. And we come as a people who lose our way as we turn our hearts toward idols and away from you from time to time. Thank you for forgiving us. We pray that you keep fighting for our heart's loyalty and keep us close to the one who alone can lead us to you. In Jesus' name, amen.